to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, September 12, 2008. I'm Alana Rankin. Last week, I did something normally not recommended. I ventured into Central Park just as it was getting dark. But I wasn't alone. I was meeting Paul Keim, New York City's own Batman. No, not that Batman. Keim gives bat tours in New York's parks and is on a mission to educate city slickers on one of the most important mammals on the planet. This week, I'm taking you on a journey into the world of bats to set a few facts straight. But before we get started, it's that season again. That's right, Science and the City's event series season. If you love our podcasts, you'll love our live events even more. Top scientists from across the country coming to speak at the Academy and your chance to meet them and have a glass of champagne afterwards at our receptions. Coming up, on September 15th, Nobel Prize winner and physicist Frank Wilczek talks about his book, The Lightness of Being. On the 16th, renowned psychologist Philip Zimbardo takes us into the human time paradox. Get your tickets today online at scienceandthecity.org slash tickets. Hurry, they'll go fast. All here. Hi, good evening. My name is Paul Keim. I'm a naturalist from Brooklyn, and tonight we are about to embark on a bat tour in Central Park up by the Museum of Natural History, and we are in the process of looking for bats and actually hoping to actually hear the sounds that they make with an echolocator box, which I have and which will allow us to hear them hunt for insects. All right, for everyone, we're going to walk straight in. We're going to go right past the Delacorte up to Turtle Pond, which is right there by the Belvedere Castle. The Science of Bats, I got started actually volunteering in Prospect Park when they first renovated the forested areas. They had big fences up, and one night, on a hunch, I went out at sunset, and I went behind the fences, and I stood there, and out of nowhere, all these bats came out from the wooded areas around the pond, and I was just absolutely floored by it and thought that this would make a great, great field trip to give to the public, something different that's at night, and the subject is very interesting because people have all kinds of funny ideas about bats. We're going to be listening mainly for little brown bats. Those are the most common. Big brown is the other bat uh, that we're going to have. Um, there's a possibility that we might get some migratory bats coming through. Those would be red bat, silver-haired, and hoary bat. The kind of bats people can expect to see are two species in particular, the little brown bat and the big brown bat. They virtually look identical except for size. The big brown averages about a 12 to 14 inch wingspan when it spreads them out, and the little brown goes to about 10 inches. When the wings aren't spread, they look like little mice. They're very small little furry mice with big ears. The other bats that you might encounter in New York City, which would probably be in spring and fall during migratory times, would be the red bat, uh, the silver-haired bat, the hoary bat, and possibly the long-eared bat. But those usually will not stay here during the breeding season. They will move further north. Which Can you 
Yes. Tell the difference in species by the sound they're making. Uh, each bat has a different frequency that it echolocates at. Some of them overlap, so in order to tell the ones that overlap, you need to use a hook it up to a computer screen where you can actually see the sonogram. Because just like birdsong, bats' echolocation produces a sonogram that's true to each bat, so uh, each one is unique. The bat box that I have can set at different frequencies, but when they overlap, it's not going to give you an exact, accurate reading of which bat it is. The echolocator looks like a little box that a musician might use, like a guitar player might use. It has basically a couple knobs on it, one for frequency and one for volume. It's just a little box that you turn on and you point it in the direction of the bats and it picks up the ultrasonic sound. So it's not much. It's only maybe three by four in size. It does a tremendous job in actually hearing the bats. It slows their sounds down that you can actually hear. So you can kind of tell what the bat's doing using your echolocator. You can tell when the bat is pursuing an insect by the speed of the clicks. It speeds up as the bat gets closer and it makes a zip sound at the end when the bat turns and swallows the insect. And it almost sounds like a little fart on the uh, echolocator. The kids kind of like that. But you need the echolocator to hear the sound because it's too fast and too high for humans to perceive. And if you were to hear it at regular speed, it would sound like a strong, high-frequency beam. And that's all you would hear. You wouldn't hear the pulses because they're going out much too fast for humans to hear. So the echolocator is wonderful for being able to hear the sound at a slower rate. So it really makes it exciting to understand what the bats are doing. All right, there you go. There he is, there he is, there he is, there he is. He just went around, just went around the light. All right, that's a good sign. <laughs> See what we get on the other side of the street. A bat actually anatomically is virtually the same as a human, except if you stood a human up next to a bat, the hands would look humongous next to a human hand. So the whole arm is actually the hand of the bat, which becomes its wing. They developed in the trees, jumping from branch to branch. The arms got longer, the fingers got longer, skin began to grow between until they developed wings. So basically, anatomically, they're the same. The only difference is the knee joint is opposite. So they can bend forward like we can't, which is an advantage when they're roosting and perching upside down. Plus they have a tail membrane, so they have skin between the legs, which is used for food catching, it's used for birthing, it's used for many things, even in the flight as well. So the bats, for the most part, are very similar, but have that one unique difference in the fact that they have wings. There are roughly a, a little over 4,000 different species of mammals. Okay, there's millions of mammals on the earth, but 4,000 distinct individual species. Of that, how many of those do you think are bats out of the 4,000? How many? 1,100. More. 1,100 is really close. A quarter of all the mammals on the earth are bats. That says something. By species or numbers? By species. There's over a thousand species of bats on the earth today. And if there's over 
just about 4,000 mammals, they make up a quarter of all the mammals. So that's why they've really become a keystone species because they are in such great control of the insects right now on the earth and seed dispersion and pollination. The thing about bats that you must realize that the reason I am doing these trips now is because bats are what are known as a keystone species right now. Keystone meaning that's the top of the arch. That's what holds the whole arch together. We're somewhere else in that arch. We're not at the top. The bats are. The bats are what are keeping all the insects at bay right now around the world and are pollinating and seed dispersing everything in the tropics. If we lose the bats, we are next to leave the earth. Because there the is a fungus out that has been found on a number of colonies of bats when they're dying out. It's a ring nose fungus, a white fungus that forms around the nose that's actually the secondary part of the cause. There have been huge die-offs of bats in upstate New York and in southern Vermont and in the Berkshires in Massachusetts. And the bat experts and the biologists do not know fully what it is that's causing it. A major part of what they're drawing towards is the introduction of certain pesticides or what they call neurotoxins because they affect the neurological systems of the animals that ingest them. And because they've been using this neurotoxin melathion for West Nile mosquito control, it has now had a chance over the last five years to work its way through the food chain up to the top predators, which are the bats. Because it's affecting their nervous system, it's forcing the bats not to go into their hibernative state. They're not fully going into the cave, to the right location in the cave for their torpor. They're coming out of their hibernative state too soon, looking for food. You could consider, like, if a human was to go to bed at night and they went and slept on the floor next to the bed instead of in the bed, that would be an example of abnormal behavior, uh, just to give you a human example of what might happen if we were to get the neurotoxins in us. A lot of them are true to caves that they were born in, the caves being the right conditions for torpor, torpor being their deep sleep that they go into, which is their hibernative state for the entire winter. And the cave has to have the right conditions, meaning it has to have the right temperature that's not going to go below freezing, that's going to allow them to drop their body temperature without freezing, but go into a meditative state of sleep where they shut everything down and they sleep the winter off and don't wake up until the following spring. So when they go to the caves, they're going back because the conditions are right. When the cave conditions change, they move. So they may... The colony may abandon a cave at some point because the conditions have changed. doesn't allow the torpor to happen. What do you think the average lifespan of a little brown bat might be then because it is only active six months and it sleeps six months? A long time. How many years do you think? What's more? 20? More. 20? More. 30? Oh, my gosh. 30 is the average lifespan of a little brown bat and figure it's eating a thousand insects an hour over 30 year period that's 
quite a damage to the insect population. So. One of the other things I just wanted to touch on, the sex part, <laughs> which is very interesting, by the way. These bats, of course, as I said before, are here six months of the year active. So they have to raise young in that time, too. So there's a factor of how are they going to breed in time and be able to produce young in time for the young to feed in time to make that hibernation. They do a thing where they do a delayed implantation where they don't fertilize the egg and the sperm together until they actually come out of their torpor in the spring. They actually mate in the fall and the female actually holds them separate in her torpor during the winter months and then impregnates herself as she comes out of her torpor so she has an exactly the right amount of time 30 to 60 days gestation for the young to eventually develop and then they come out and it's another three weeks of mother's milk before they actually fly and taste insects the young actually sit in groups together how many uh, young per mom uh, little brown big brown it's one pup a season Red bats are not uncommon to have triplets. Hoary and silver hair, I think, is usually one pup a season. Usually when you have a small group of five or six, the females will leave the young together, and they will wrap themselves together in their wings and stay warm and cozy. That's part of the reason the wings are really good, because they act as an insulation. The young bats cling together, and when the adults come back, they've already imprinted on the young when they are born by smell. Mammals have a tremendous sense of smell and also by sound. And it's not uncommon if an adult is lost that an orphan will be fed. One of my favorite bat stories, well, I have two, actually. The first one is I was in the Berkshires as a young kid. We used to go there every summer. And, of course, there was a bat in the bedroom as we were getting ready to go to sleep. And so my dad instinctually got a broom to try and coax it out as we opened the window and it just kept flying around. We kept the door closed, and so I went in to help. And we were sitting there hoping that it would go out the window, and what happened? A second one flew in the window. So we had two bats in the room at the same time, and eventually one landed on the wall, and we swept him out the window, and the other one finally flew out the window on his own. When they're echolocating in that house, those echolocation sounds are going off those walls and around and around, and it's like an endless tunnel that the bat's going around and around has nowhere else to go until it finds that open spot. So sit down, open the door, open a window. Suggestion made was to maybe bang on something near the open space which the bat can key on and out it'll go. So that's the best thing I can say if you get them in the house. People can fight developers from using pristine areas, keeping areas that have a lot of trees, not allowing them to cut the dead trees down, Dead trees are a great attractant to bats and to birds and to insects. Either the hollow parts or getting underneath the bark, bats can use that as a roost site. Putting night-blooming plants in your backyards, using some kind of water system if you have a garden, some kind of circulatory water system that will attract insects, using bug lights at night. Swimming pools are a good attractant to bats at night to drink water, and the lights over the water will attract insects, and the insects will come down. Uh, I've had stories of people telling me where they've been sitting in their pools, 
and the bats actually are coming down while they're sitting in the pool, drinking water, going by them as they're swimming. Those are some of the things that you can do. Putting up a bat house, doing a little research, finding out about bat houses. You can get all kinds of designs on the internet. Have them face south, have them sit about 20, 30 feet up on a pole, paint them black. Can't guarantee that they'll work, but a little patience always helps. Putting a little netting at the bottom to catch the guano can give you an indication whether they're actually being used or not. I guess my favorite thing is the fact that they're so mysterious, that they are at night, that they're so misunderstood, and yet they are so extremely important to our survival, and that there are so many of them on the Earth that they make up a quarter of all the mammals on the Earth. I found that to be the most fascinating fact. Love Science in the City podcast? Support them by becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit scienceandthecity.org and click Join NIAS. Did you know you can subscribe to Science in the City podcast on iTunes and get our newest story downloaded every week automatically to your iTunes library? Search Science and the City in your iTunes search bar. Have questions or comments about our show? We'd love your feedback. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. Want to know more about science in New York? Visit scienceandthecity.org or check us out on Facebook. See you next week.